Good morning. We are going to be taking a look at a uh, few passages today as we start our new series on spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts might be, I think, one of the most often preached, not, I'm not saying the most often, it's definitely up there, one of the most often preached or taught series in a Sunday school, life group, uh, if you're at a church any, uh, any length of time, at some point sooner than later, you're probably going to hear the pastor preach on spiritual gifts. But I'm not convinced that those who speak on it are always uh, as intent on going to the text as they are on just repeating what they were taught. And that's, by the way, that's a concern across the board with many theologies, many truths, is that if we're not careful as teachers, we will more likely than not just tell you what was told us some 10, 20, 30 years ago, or fairly recent, uh, not so much what we've studied in Scripture. And, uh, you know, as I have done some research on this topic recently, within the last year, not much has changed regarding my belief in spiritual gifts. And we'll be talking about all of these spiritual gifts over the coming months. But uh, there has been some, I guess, deeper understanding of spiritual gifts, not so much changed understanding. And so I'll be giving that to you in detail as we go through them together. As I was taught spiritual gifts in college, Bible college, I was told that there are basically three types of spiritual gifts. There are the, the gifts of service or ministry, and uh, that would be the ones that, uh, well, there literally is a gift of service or ministry, but others such as, um, uh, let's see here, teaching would be the gifts uh, under, under teaching. You've got service, teaching, and then you've got gifts of miracles. And then the miracles would be things like the tongues and the healing and, and, of course, the miracles. The teaching would be the teachers and the preachers, the prophecy and the evangelists. And the gifts of service would pretty much be everything else. That's kind of how it was broken down for me is in three categories. And as I've studied Scripture, of course, there is no categories of the spiritual gifts. God's Word never tells you, here's a list of all the service gifts, and here's a list of all the teaching gifts, and here's a list of all the, the signs gifts or miracles gifts, you might say. And so whenever we break these into categories, it is purely based off of logic, based off of assumption, based off of, you could even say, philosophy. Our philosophy uh, will have a part to play on how these gifts are broken up. And I am going to break up these gifts as well. In fact, you can see on that first page, I kind of break them up into five categories. But let me just tell you, the reason I break them up is not so you have a hard and fast line of what gift goes where but more so to kind of open your eyes to how these gifts are used. There are some gifts that, according to the breakdown that I give you, could fit in more than one category. Some gifts may fit in a category you feel is better suited to that gift than the one that I place it in. But please understand the categories that I've given you, the five categories rather than the three that I was given in college, are again just to have a better understanding of the use of the gifts, and that's pretty much it. So let's, first of all, begin by taking a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to look at verse 8. The Bible says, For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. Now, I want to clarify here, the word of wisdom is not the same as wisdom. Obviously, it includes wisdom. The word of wisdom would be a gift that has the, the idea of wisdom, but there is something unique about the word of wisdom rather than just wisdom specifically. 
The Bible tells us that anyone who wants wisdom, any who lack wisdom, should ask of God. And God, who is very liberal in his giving, will grant it to all of those who ask for it. And I do believe that God can grant you a spiritual gift if you ask for it. We'll talk about a little later how that is the case. I'll kind of give you just a brief comment now. The Apostle Paul spoke in the book of Corinthians. He said, hey, uh, I have the gift of tongues. And he said, I'm glad that I do so that when I speak on tongues versus others, you guys aren't going to say, well, you're just saying that because you can't speak on tongues. But the Apostle Paul said, I would encourage you to ask for the other gifts. Don't ask for the gift of tongues. So if the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthian church to ask for gifts, I think the implication is pretty strong that gifts aren't just given to us. Gifts can be given because we desire a particular gift. Maybe gifts are given because there is, a, there is a need for a particular gift. Now, here's a question that I can't answer for you. Scripture doesn't answer, but are gifts temporary? Does God give you a gift for a time and then replace it with another gift? I have, again, done a lot of research and a lot of reading on this, and when I was younger, I would have said, no, there's no way. I mean, once he got the gift, it's yours. God's not in the, pro, you know, in the, in the habit of giving gifts and taking away gifts. And I still believe that, that, you know, God's, God's not going to take something back from you that he has given you, generally speaking. But these gifts are unique in how they're used. And I do believe that God, it is a possibility in my head, that God may give you a gift, grant you a gift for a time, for a calling, for something he's asked you to do. And it may not be permanently imparted upon you. Now, I do believe that if you have the Holy Spirit, you will have gifts of the Spirit in your life. I do believe that at, all, at any time, at any given time, a Christian will, will be able to evidence, should be able to evidence spiritual gifts if you are filled with the Spirit, if you have the indwelling of the Spirit. Sure. Ah. Uh. So I, I understand what you, okay, go ahead, yep. Well, you can see here at the, at the page I've given you, there are a lot of gifts. Now, at the top here, I'm just, I'm just listing every time the gift is given in that passage, and sometimes it's listed more than once, but there are quite a few gifts here. Uh, you said you were taught or read recently that most of the gifts are gone. I would not agree with that. I would personally believe that some of them are no longer in use. We'll talk about those uh, down, down the road in, in months to come. But I would say most of these gifts are still here. Not all, in my opinion, but most. All right, so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, ver- chapter 12, verse 8 again. So we got the first gift, word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And then verse 11, but all these worketh that one and self same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Uh, the, the gifts of the spirit can be a little confusing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this probably often, and I'm going to try to help us better understand how these work. But the thing about the gifts of the spirit, if you look, look at the top there, wisdom. Wisdom is the gift of the spirit. We can ask for wisdom. God will be liberal in wisdom. But specifically, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, can you gain knowledge without having the word of knowledge? Yes. 
Can you grow in wisdom without having the gift of the word of wisdom? Yes. Let's talk about faith. Should Christians grow in their faith? Yes. Do all Christians have a, an amount of faith? Yes. I mean, you wouldn't be saved without faith, right? Because faith is required to be saved. And so what I'm trying to say is a lot of these gifts, you probably have at least a working ability in them or some amount of, of wisdom, knowledge, faith. Uh, you can look down at number seven, discernment. You're going to have, to, to some degree, some of these gifts will be displayed in you as a believer. And you could probably go down the list of all of these and say, all right, in, in some way, I've got this a little bit. I got that a little bit. I got that a little bit. Doesn't mean you have that gift. It just means that as a believer, evidence of the Holy Spirit is in your life. And, and you might say the overflowing of the Holy Spirit will be seen in many of these. But the gift of the Spirit doesn't mean you have a functional ability in it. It doesn't mean you have a working ability in it. If, you, if it's a gift of yours, it means you excel in it or it comes to you easily. As a basketball coach, you can right away tell the natural athletes, those who do not have to work hard to get down the drill that I am teaching or to, to uh, do a layup or to do a jump shot. And then there are those who they will practice and they will practice and they will practice and they're good enough to be on the team, but they will never be a starter. Now, they could practice three hours a day, every day, five days a week for an entire year, and they still won't be a starter because they're lacking the natural ability. But they practice three hours a day, they'll be a great player, just not the best of players. They'll be a good player, right? And I think that that's how I'm going to describe the gifts of the Spirit, that some of us, we work really hard and we, we get better uh, in our discernment. We've learned a lot through life experience. We've learned a lot through our relationships with people. We, we have come to have more discernment in how we deal with people and talk with people. But it has come through learning and bad choices and God's mercy in our life. It wasn't necessarily natural to us that it's just easy for us to discern the good and the evil in people and in ourselves. You could say the same thing about number seven on... Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and that's the governments and ruling. That for some people, they can become good leaders. Other people are born leaders. Well, the question has been, are, are leaders made or born? The answer is yes. I mean, the leaders are both made and born. <laughs> there are some who are just born leaders, and I've met some of those. And I, as a teacher, teach some of them in our school who at a very young age, they just stand out, stand up, and move forward, and other people naturally follow them. They are born leaders. So then the goal of other leaders is to take that born leader and shape them into a good leader, right? Not let that born leader become an, uh, an evil, self-destructive leader. And then there are those who are not born leaders. Like the last thing they want to do is get out in front. The last thing they want to do is have any kind of attention. But they can be taught how to lead. And I honestly believe, in my own opinion, that some of the best leaders are not the born ones, in my opinion. And I'll tell you why. The born leaders, it is so easy for a born leader to be prideful. So easy for them to say, look what I've done. Look who I am. I mean, I was, I'm just naturally this way. Didn't have to work for it. It just came to them. They can be great leaders. I've found in my experience, oftentimes at some point in their life, it's just so easy to stray that so many of them do. <laughs> the ones who are not born leaders, the ones who knew the work it took for them to get where they're at and all the mercy God gave in their life for them to get there, I find that they are often more humble in their leadership. And I appreciate that in leaders. But either way, my point is, just because you don't have the gift of governments and ruling 
doesn't mean you can't be a leader. It just means it doesn't come naturally to you. It doesn't, you don't excel in that. And so with all of these gifts, that's my opinion. At least, let's say with most of these gifts. All right, so we looked at 1 Corinthians 12. Let's go to verse 28 now. And God hath set some of the church first, apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Now, that's where the list is. Let's keep going, though, just to get an idea of the Apostle Paul's mindset regarding gifts. Verse 29, are all apostles? The answer is, is no. Are all prophets? Again, no. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Have all the gifts of healings? No. Here we go. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. I don't want to spend a lot of time on tongues this morning because we will have plenty of opportunity for that in later lessons. But I do want to initially deal with this gift of tongues because that is often the one that is thought of first, spoke on the most, and it brings the most controversy is the gift of tongues. There are churches who believe that if you are saved, you will speak in tongues. And if you cannot speak in tongues, you are not saved. And I know this because I have spoken with some who come from these churches, even as a young child in California. I had friends who came from these churches. And one of the first things they did with children in these churches was to teach them how to speak in tongues. They taught them how to do that. Why? Because they were concerned if my child doesn't speak in tongues, they will not be viewed as saved in this church, and maybe they're not saved. It's almost like a, a replacement of baptism, that, that some churches say, well, you've got to be baptized to be saved or evidence of your salvation, whether it's Baptist or Catholic. Catholics obviously believe that, as do many of the Protestant religions. But unfortunately, even some Baptists have got it in their head, like, if you're not baptized, are you really saved? That's unfortunate. So some have replaced baptism with tongues and say, oh, if you can't speak in tongues, are you really saved? And yet the Apostle Paul says here very clearly that not every believer speaks in tongues. Not every believer interprets tongues. You say, well, Pastor Russ, you just stated that with many of these, you can learn them. And therefore, can someone not learn to speak in tongues? Well, I said, I did, I did clarify. I said most. And my, my concern with the tongues is because I think we, myself and many other Christians have different definitions of what tongues is. Now, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, so I'll end with this. My belief regarding tongues in the Bible is that when you see people speaking in tongues, it was not just interpreters who understood. It was the unsaved who understood. Now, that's a big key right there. Because to have the gift of interpretation, you had to be saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Because it's the gift of the Spirit. So how could someone who's unsaved understand the language if they don't have the Holy Spirit and the gifts of interpretation? There's only one answer to that question. The only way an unsaved person could understand the gift of tongues was if the person speaking in tongues was speaking a language that an unsaved person knew. You cannot say they had the interpretation of tongues because they were not saved. How do we know they were not saved? Because literally in the book of Acts, we're told that they got saved after the apostle Peter preached. And after the apostles preached in tongues, those that said, wow, how can they speak in our language? We don't, understand. we don't understand how these guys would know our language. And they were told thousands got saved that day, which means they were not saved, which means they did not have the Holy Spirit, 
which means they did not have the gift of interpretation. How did they understand the language? Exactly. It was a language. I am very, very strong, adamant in my belief that the gift of tongues during the first century church was the ability to speak a foreign language you did not previously know. So, practically speaking, could you learn a language you did not know? Sure. So then did you learn tongues? All right, fine. Yeah, I guess you did. So in a sense, you could. But the gift of tongue was, was the ability to speak it without learning it. And that is one of those where you can't learn it because once you've learned it, you no longer have the gifts of tongues because it, it cancels out the gift altogether. You didn't need the gift if you learned the language. But speaking the language without learning it is a gift only the Holy Spirit can give you. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. There are some theologians who believe that the gift of tongues today is evidenced in the ability to learn a language quickly. And some get around that idea that the gift of tongues is no longer for today by saying, no, it is for today. You ever known a student who just can pick up a language like really fast and they're, you know, multi, uh, you know, not just bilingual, but they got multiple languages under their belt. Uh, I, I, again, I'm not going to see that as a gift of the spirit. I just see that, see that as a very academic, strongly academic mind and the ability to, to learn things quickly, whether languages or otherwise, the gift of the tongues was purely I can speak a language that I don't know. By the way, why would you need an interpreter? Because even as you're speaking it, you don't necessarily know, possibly, it's possible, the Bible doesn't clarify, you don't even know yourself what you're saying. That is a possibility. Or, as you're speaking it, in your head you hear your language, but as you speak it, others don't hear that language. So you could say, well, I'll just interpret it by saying what I'm saying. Okay, you got two problems. Either you keep saying the language you don't understand, or you interpret it by speaking, you know, in our term, English, and those who don't speak English, it's not going to do them any good, right? So I, I don't know. I'm not sure how this looks, but um, I don't think that every person who spoke in tongues was an interpreter, which implies that some of them maybe just knew they were preaching and maybe in their own head knew what they were preaching, but the words coming out of their mouth was a different language. That's my assumption all right, let's go ahead and take a look now at these different categories of gifts. We're going to look at Romans and Ephesians later, but I just want to kind of get started in the lesson because we've been talking so much about individual. I told you I'd break these into five categories, and I told you that these five categories are not biblical. There's no reference to one, two, three, four, five, six, ten categories. I told you when I was in college, it was, I was given to them in three categories, and I, I told you that the purpose of putting, putting them in categories is to better understand what they accomplish, and that's pretty much it. There's really no other reason than that. Now, I gave you five. You can see here number one, category or gift of position. That would be the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Gifts of position. These are not necessarily positions of just authority, but authority and service. Because any spiritual leader, and all, all of these, all five of these are spiritual leaders. Any position of a spiritual leader must include service, not just the ability to make decisions, but the, the responsibility to serve God's church. The second category I gave you was gifts of provision, and that's essentially the ability to help other people, to provide for the needs of other people. And I gave you ministry, which is other texts called helps and serving, exhortation, giving, and, and mercy are the gifts of provision that I put there. I told you, you could put some of these other places. You could come up with the sixth category, and that's fine. I'm not going to argue that point with you. Uh, let's move on to the third category I gave, and that's gifts of promotion. Now, not promotion 
of the individual. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit giving you a gift so you can promote yourself. We're talking about gifts that promote the church. Now, having said that, don't all of these gifts, in a sense, promote the church? Yes, they do. I get that. But there, I think, are unique gifts that really just promote the church to the community in ways that cause the community's jaw to drop open and say, wow, I've never seen that before. Something's different about you guys. This is amazing. It was said of Christ through his miracles. Some said, you must be the Messiah. Only the Messiah could do these things. Another said, you must be of the devil. Only the devil can do these things. Uh, What he did was amazing, and it required people to make a decision. Unfortunately, some were forced to the wrong side due to their pride and rebellion, their sinful nature. And they said, oh, I'll make a decision all right, but you're of the devil. (laughs) And that's when Christ said, look, you can blaspheme and, uh, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's the unforgivable sin. Now, what, is that, what did Christ mean when he said the unpardonable, unforgivable sin when you blaspheme the Spirit? It was in the text where Christ did a miracle, and some said it was of the devil. What you did is of the devil, which means we reject your deity, we don't believe your Christ, and we don't believe that, that the works you do are of God. We believe they are of Satan. So essentially, they are rejecting Christ as the Messiah. And so blaspheming the Holy Spirit, at least in the text that I see in the Gospels with Christ, was the rejection of Christ's miracles uh, promoting or signifying or qualifying Christ as God and essentially rejecting Christ himself. So what is the only sin that God will not forgive? It is a sin of rejecting the deity of Christ, meaning you didn't get saved. Because to be saved, you have to, through faith, accept Christ as your Savior. And if you don't believe Christ is God and is the Savior, you won't have faith in him to be saved. So, I believe that these gifts of promotions go above and beyond just the fact that Christians are and should be merciful and giving and should have words of knowledge. Above and beyond that, they, they did amazing things that God said, I want you to see what they do and then see who they point to. And if they were doing it right, they would have done amazing things, got the attention of the community, and then prom- and promoted and pointed to Christ. By promoting the church, they were promoting the church of Christ, the body of Christ, Christ himself. Okay, gifts of preparation. I put these gifts under this category because God, it seems, uh, cares very much about our ability to, to lead and live successful lives on this earth. God's intention is not just for us to go to heaven when we die, and whatever happens on earth, you know, say la vie, it's okay, no big deal. Uh, no, God says what happens on this earth is a big deal, because what happens on this earth affects eternity by the souls that you lead to me, by the people you impact, by the lives that are changed by Christ, yes, but they were brought to Christ by you. And so God wants us to be prepared for a difficult journey so that we don't fail in this journey along the way. And so these are gifts of preparation, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, and teaching. And then gifts of protection, faith, discernment, and government or ruling. Now let's go back to gifts of preparation. Did you notice what I did not put under gifts of preparation? I did not put under pastors. And again, there are some that could go in more than one, some that could go in a different category than what I put. But I did, I was purposeful in not putting pastor there. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, those who want to be a pastor, an elder, which is a pastor, have to be able to teach. 
which implies to me they're two different spiritual gifts. But the implication is also, if God has called you to be a pastor, he will give you the gift of teaching. But you could have the gift of teaching and not called to be a pastor, not have the gift of the pastor. But they are two separate gifts. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul wouldn't have to say that. He would say, if you were a pastor, then you are a teacher. They come one together, and they're the same. And I also think that the, the responsibilities of a pastor under that gift are different than the responsibilities of teaching under that gift, which is why the pastor needs both responsibilities. One pastor doesn't cover both job descriptions. Teaching is the ability to communicate truths to people in a way that they walk away learning something. Not just hearing a bunch of words and saying, well, that sounded good. Too bad I don't understand what they said. And a lot of pastors are just like that. I've been in those messages. And by the way, I mean, I love the Word of God. This was when I was younger, and I really, really wanted to learn. I, I had my notebook out. I was writing notes. I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't given a little handout with fill in the blanks. Like, it was a blank piece of paper, and I, I have a note, notebooks, plural, full in my office of my college days. Of every message I heard, I'd be writing notes. And there were some, it's like, I don't know what to write from this guy. So I'd just be writing stuff, trying to make sense of what he's saying. But when I'm done with my notes, I look at it, and I'm thinking, I don't even know what I wrote. I'm not sure what the guy was trying to preach. I mean, uh, 45 minutes, an hour of my life, and I, it was like a blur. And then there are some, it's like every sentence that came out of this guy's mouth taught me something new. And so being a teacher is a beautiful gift because it imparts knowledge on people. And it is something required for a pastor, otherwise you're in the wrong position. All right, gifts of protection. Again, I did not put pastor under this one. I would probably cause many pastors to hyperventilate at what I'm about to say. I recognize that pastors are under shepherds. They are called under shepherds. In fact, the word pastor is, is translated from the idea in the word of shepherd. So I get that. And a shepherd is a protector of the sheep. But having said that, sometimes the sheep need protection from the pastor. And sometimes the sheep need more than just one protector. I am not saying a pastor cannot and is not a protector of God's people. But he is not the only protector of God's people. He is one of many protectors of God's people. I would also say that... A pastor who eliminates other protectors over God's people is setting himself and God's church up for failure because God's church is not a monarchy. There's not only one king, and his name is Pastor. If we talk about one king, his name is Christ, King of Kings. Outside of that, we are all servants. And God does not just place one servant in the church to protect. I am greatly disturbed by churches who only have one protector, and his name is pastor. And they are scared. They are um, intimidated by anyone else in the church who would dare protect God's people because that's my job to protect God's people, not yours. Your job is to be protected. My job is to protect you. (laughs) That's a scary statement right there. What I do see 
are gifts of faith, discernment, and government. Now, government and ruling is the gift. We'll talk about all of these more in depth, but governments and ruling is the gift to lead people towards Christ. That's governments and ruling. Making decisions, setting a path of success, working with people in a way that causes them to want to follow you. You might, you might almost say governments and ruling is the gift of leadership. It's, it is a spiritual gift. There are those who are Christians who are just gifted leaders. And the pastor's not the only one. <laughs> and also, in the same line as teaching, governments and ruling and the gift of pastor is not the same gift. A pastor can be a pastor but must have the gift of teaching. And what other gift must that pastor have? The gift of ruling. How do we know that? First Timothy 3 again. He must rule his house well. Because if he can't rule his own house, how can he rule the people of God? So these are not the same gifts. A man may say, I've got the gift of pastorate, but I don't have the gift of teaching. Well, then you know what? There are ways you could use that gift in the church, but not in the position of pastor. Meaning you could have the gift of shepherding, and maybe your gift of shepherding needs to be in, in a role of assisting God's people in the church, but not in the role of pastor. Because First Timothy 3, the role of pastor requires not just the role of shepherding, but the role of shepherding paired with at least teaching and what? Ruling. There also means someone who has a gift of teaching but not the role a gift of pastor shouldn't be a pastor. I think there's a lot out there that are, though. I think there's a lot of great teachers who people are just drawn to, and they say, well, you'll be our pastor because you're a good teacher. And the guy says, sure, I'll be your pastor. Becomes a pastor, and the church just doesn't seem to really get momentum. The church just it goes, and then it stops. It goes, and it stops, back and forth, back and forth. Or, or people really learn a lot, but not much else happens. The community's not being reached. People are learning, but they're not growing, and there is a difference. <laughs> you can learn and not grow, and a teacher can help you learn, but if that's all that's happening, the church isn't really growing. But so many Christians are, are not aware of all of the gifts and how they work that they think that because you can teach the Word of God, you should be a pastor. That's just not true. Same with governments and ruling. Because you are a good ruler, because you are a natural-born leader, you should be a pastor. Again, not true. Being a pastor is a calling, calling of God. And I believe if God calls you, he will equip you with all the gifts necessary to be a pastor. That doesn't mean you will have all these gifts. It means you'll have the gifts you need to be a pastor. But also, hopefully, the wisdom to put other people in positions of spiritual leadership and service who complement the gifts you have, meaning they don't repeat the gifts you got, they got the gifts you don't have. That's good leadership. But a lot of pastors are scared of that. And so they basically set themselves up as the protector, no one else. And if the church doesn't like it, they can go somewhere else because I'm the guy. And that's unfortunate. That it happens to a lot of people, Sue. So, guys, God gives gifts to members in the church to protect the church. And the only protector is not, I mean, the pastor is not the only protector, excuse me. The pastor is not the only protector. Other people have the gifts of faith and discernment, and these gifts protect the church. And a good pastor would let these gifts thrive in the church so everyone can benefit.
Another gift is governments and ruling. And a good pastor will let governments and ruling thrive in the church outside of his own finite ability to rule because he's only one man. Outside of his own authority, a good pastor will set up other good spiritual leaders for success in the church, recognizing that the more leaders this church has taking people to Christ, the better off we all are. But I'll tell you this, a lot of pastors aren't thinking about the better off we all are. He's thinking about the better off I am. And the more leaders, the less authority I have. And the less authority I have, the less power I have. And the less popularity I have, the less even love I have. How dare you love anyone else in the church more than you love your pastor? How dare you? How dare you love the youth pastor more than the lead pastor? How dare you love the worship pastor or the children's pastor more than the lead pastor? That's almost akin to blasphemy. And yet, in my opinion, how dare you love any pastor more than you love Christ? And if you love Christ the most, I don't really care who you love second most. (laughs) Because as long as you love Christ the most, you're going to be okay. And whether I am second on that list or 22nd on that list, honestly, I care very little. I love you. Do you love Christ? That's all I want to know. Why? Because your spiritual success is not dependent on you loving me the most. (laughs) And if I love you and I love your spiritual success, then that's not a factor in our relationship. I can love you, and I do love you. But churches whose pastors don't understand the spiritual gifts, and that's where I started today. I said that my my study of the spiritual gifts didn't really change much as far as what I thought about tongues or healings or evangelists or prophets or teachers or pastors. That didn't change. You know what did change? Uh, the, The depth of my understanding regarding these spiritual gifts and how they're used in the church and how they work together, that changed. That went a whole lot deeper once I did the study on my own rather than just repeating what I was taught since college and before. And so that's what I want to bring to, to this group. I'm, I'm probably not going to say much that will completely rock your boat. That like, what? I've never heard that before. That's just like, a, you know, that's completely opposite of what I was taught about tongues or healings or miracles. Probably not going to say much of that, but I hopefully will take you deeper in your understanding of spiritual gifts so you can see yourself and others in a light you've never seen before. All right, let's go now to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at the other two texts dealing with spiritual gifts. And this is going to be Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. Sure, Scott, what's your question? Yes, yes. Okay, so that distinguishment. Scott's asking, do I distinguish between preaching and teaching? Um, I do distinguish between teaching and preaching. I believe the Bible references teaching and it references preaching, two different words, two different Greek words. So um, let me compare it to something we're more familiar with, love. So you know that there's different Greek words for love, right? There's the erotic love that should only be within a husband and wife relationship. There is the friendship love that we're told in 1 Corinthians should be kind of offered to all, right? Um, there, is, there is like a general love, like love for inanimate objects kind of thing. So there, there are different types of love. 
it has the, it, it has some similarities in all, in some form, some kind of connection, some kind of emotional draw, some kind of uh, attraction, right? Uh, even if it's food, like there's an emotional uh, attraction to this food, like it makes you happy to eat it, right? So there's some kind of attraction there. But they, they, they are different, and the implications are different in each one and how that relationship should look, obviously. So same with preaching and teaching. I would say that they are similar. Obviously, there is information given, but... Um, how the information given, I think, isn't so much of what separates them as opposed to the purpose of the, of the information. So let me break it down. I believe that teaching, the purpose of teaching, is to uh, grow your understanding, to, to broaden your mind, to open your eyes, to, to walk away and say, I understand deeper now than when I walked in earlier. I have, I have a, a knowledge of a truth that I did not have, or I have an avenue of that knowledge, something I never considered regarding this relationship or our God or the church that I did not have. That's accomplished through teaching. And because of that, teachers often are very academic because that's kind of their goal. Their, their goal is to help you understand something better. So teachers are going to use bigger words, probably be a little more boring in their uh, presentation because they're not so concerned about the emotional side. Teachers are generally, you know, the mind, right? Let's focus on the mind. Whereas a preacher, their goal and their purpose isn't so much for you to grow in your understanding. That's part of it because like love, right, there's some similarities. It's not that a preacher doesn't want you to learn. I don't think that that's their main focus. I think that when preaching, the main focus is for you to act. So a teacher is trying to grow your understanding, and a preacher is trying to grow your action. And so you can say your application. Now, again, I'm going to say this again. Both have similarities. I mean, a good teacher is going to give you application and say, now what are you going to do with it? And a good preacher is going to give you information to act on, right? Bad teachers just give you knowledge, and you say, what do I do with that? I don't care. It's just I want to give you knowledge. And there literally are teachers like that. You walk away, there's no application. In fact, I was speaking with the pastor some years ago. It was about two years ago. And uh, the guy said, yeah, so every Sunday, he said, I'm a teacher. I'm not a preacher. Uh, most preachers do separate in their own definitions, maybe similar to mine or others. And he says, I'm not a preacher. I'm a teacher. And he says, Sunday mornings, I never give application. I just give information and let the Holy Spirit do what he's going to do. And I said, all right, I, I, get, I, I do understand where you're coming from. Like, you don't want to step on the Holy Spirit's toes, right? Like, let him do his work. But the Bible is application. So if you're teaching the Bible, are you ignoring the application? Are you skipping over the application? Because if you're teaching the Bible, you would and should be teaching application. He didn't see it that way. I couldn't change his mind. You know, it's not my church. I'm not really his friend. We were just talking. So that's, that's what it was. But there are teachers, Scott, that are like that. They are so focused on teaching that it's only information, only knowledge, no application. That's a danger. Because what does the Bible say about knowledge when it's just purely knowledge given to you? Puffs up, gets prideful, right? So that's my concern, is that when, you're not, when your teaching doesn't include some level of preaching, some level of application, and it's just knowledge, you're setting people up for failure. All right. On the flip side, a preacher who's just preaching action, 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 and not giving you information and knowledge, not including some level of teaching in that preaching, uh, a foundation, a platform to step on for action, 
A lot of people are just blindly acting, eyes closed. Woo, you know, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to run up and down the aisle. There's action there. I'm going to come up to the altar and cry. There's action there. I'm going to respond to the preaching. There's action there. I'm going to take a handful of tracts and give them out. There's action there. And the preacher has accomplished his goal. This is an action church. But action based off of no knowledge. <laughs> and so this is the bubble, and that bubble's easily popped. And as soon as that popped, the action's gone. And so both of them, Scott, purely by themselves, I think are dangerous. I think a good spiritual leader will include a little bit of both and will be more of one over the other. I am more of a teacher. I include preaching. I have friends that are more of preachers, include teaching. And so that's how it is. I, but the Bible does say you have to teach, so a pastor has to have some level of teaching, not only preaching, but I would say it's wise for a teacher to also have some level of preaching and bring the application in. Answer your question? Sure. Follow up. Go ahead. First Timothy chapter 3 says apt to teach, able to teach. You say not a great teacher. Sure. You don't have to be a great teacher to be able to teach, but you got to have a working ability to teach. You can't be a horrible teacher, otherwise you're in the wrong position. But it doesn't have to be the best teacher. Okay. All right, we are in Romans chapter 12 and verses 6 through 8. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. What does that mean? You don't deserve any of these gifts. You, haven't, you, can, you have not and you cannot work to attain any of these gifts. All you can do is ask for them. And God, in his sovereignty, decides whether to give them to you or not. Now, I said, you will have at least one. Which one you get is up to him. You can ask for ones you don't got. You can, you can beg for ones you don't have, and that's fine. And God may or may not do that. He will give you some. That is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. I love that word diligence. Commitment, follow through, patience, endurance. He that rules, if you're going to be a leader, don't give up. Because when leaders give up, what happens? Other people stumble. With great authority comes great responsibility. God, I just said this in a devotion I wrote and sent out to those who, are, who get devotions recently, and that is God does not expect us to lift great weights. You know why? Because we cast our burdens on him. God is the heavy lifter. <laughs> you don't have to be the heavy lifter, guys. So many Christians thinking, oh, I'm just so weak, I can't carry that weight. Well, I got good news for you. You don't have to. Give it to God. You know, God does ask us of us to not give up. Too many Christians are trying to be champion weightlifters, and God wants us to be champion runners. Lean. Mean, running machines. Keep running, don't stop. By the way, usually the stronger you are, the less endurance you have when you run. And so many Christians focus so much on their strength to lift a heavy burden that God doesn't intend them to carry that at some point it breaks them and they give up. The Christians who are most successful are just the ones, it's like whatever comes their life, they just, oh, just filter it right back to God. Oh, just give it right back to God. Give it right back to God. It's like you're throwing stuff at them and they just constantly just throw it back up, throw it back up. It never hits them. They catch it and throw it up, catch it and throw it up, catch it and throw it up. That's the answer. That's the key to a successful life is endurance, not, not the, the, the powerhouse strength. 
that so many Christians think that they need to survive. You don't. God is your powerhouse strength. The Bible says be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, not our own. Yes, Gladys. Yes. Yes, so that goes back to the preaching scenario. If all you do is preach, carry that weight, carry that weight, and don't teach, and, and people understand it's not our weight to carry. They're going to act, but that action is going to lead to them giving up. It's too heavy. All right, Romans chapter 12 and verse, uh, let's see, where are we at? Verse 8. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and we'll finish up our lesson for today. The last text dealing with Spiritual gifts. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers. And there it is. So four texts in the New Testament. I will say this. Uh, some theologians believe that there are spiritual gifts mentioned in the Old Testament uh, attached specifically to God's statement that he would give special, unique ability to certain workers who did jobs in the temple, some of the, the gold gilding that they applied and some of the construction work. And so some people believe that some gifts of the Spirit are construction abilities or music abilities. And we, it seems to imply in the Old Testament God gave some the, the gift or ability of, of, to music, of worship. I don't believe those are the same as New Testament, and I'll tell you why, because the church's not in the Old Testament. <laughs> and these are gifts to the church. So whatever ability God gave in the Old Testament was for his sovereignty, his reasoning to get a job done. You might say it kind of mirrored what it looks like today, but these gifts are gifts God promised the church, and these are the texts that God lists those promises to the church. Is it possible there are gifts not mentioned here? Sure, it's always a possibility. Is it probable? I would say no. I would say if God's listing the gifts for us, that he's going to give us the gifts he wants us to know about. He's not going to hide some, but... Not going to say it's an impossibility. Okay, uh, we'll close with that. So thank you for joining us. Hope to see you guys next uh, Sunday. I will take some um, questions shortly, but we'll go and end the recording now for those listening.